Hey, friends. The uh, podcast you're about to listen to, we've decided to start publishing in video format as well. <clears throat> you can find that on the church's YouTube channel. And the reason I, I talk about that rather than just letting it go is because in uh, the segment you're about to listen to, there are a couple visuals that I'm going to be pointing to and allu alluding to that you're not going to be able to see if you're just listening to this. So that may or may not be frustrating to you. So if you want to go over to Know What a Methodists at um, the YouTube channel that we have, that's where you can see the, the graphics that I put together, hopefully for the uh, encouragement of the body, the information of the body. Jonah is not a book that a lot of people think of when seeking modern-day Christian truth. Uh, it's just four chapters. We're, we're only going to be spending four weeks in this, and yet there's a lot of depth to it. Um, it's a book that I've underappreciated and that I've really enjoyed having more time to dive into. So um, whenever I got done preaching on Sunday, a number of people approached me and said, that was really interesting, um, or some version of that. It wasn't the exact same quote. But there are several different people who were very engaged by this, and I think you will be too. So I hope you stick with it. Um, I hope you prayerfully consider my words. Uh, it is not the Word of God. We're reading the Word of God together, but my thoughts and reflections are, are just that. So take them uh, in, in consultation with the other scriptures and, and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to urge you, if you're not a person who's in our church, but you're just listening to me for, for some reason, very glad to have you listen to me. I hope you benefit from it. My, my prayer for anyone who's outside of the church, whoever listens to me, is that you feel moved into the local church. If you live here in Nowata, then please consider coming in person and, and looking at our church. But if you're just abroad and listening to different voices, look for a biblically oriented church around you that is going to help you grow deeper in your faith and closer to Jesus Christ. Okay, I've talked enough. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, get into Sunday's message where I'm talking some more. So enjoy. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. It's a weird time to be doing ministry. Uh, there are more people in the world right now than there have ever been, and we have more technology to reach one another than we've ever had, and yet people are more isolated, especially in our country, than they've ever been before. Alienation and isolation are all around us. People are uh, not using their social muscles and are getting weird. And um, not that humans have not been weird before, but we're getting weirder. A lot of shut-ins. A lot of people with broken relationships, a lot of people unable to deal with adversity or disagreement. The church is harder and harder a thing to participate in authentically, partly because of those things and partly because the example of the church, the bar of the church, has been set so low by many popular and influential churches. What we're doing here is very weird to them. It's normal and natural to God and his kingdom to, to genuinely Try to connect with one another and be reformed in the image of Christ Jesus. That is the task of the church. And if we're not doing that, then we're wasting our time. So that's why we reflect on God's word. 
That's what we're going to be doing. Well, we've been doing that by praying together, by singing together. We're going to do it by attending God's word together. By eating together afterwards, these are things that Christians have always done, and hopefully we're doing it in ways that please and glorify God. We have a number of people with us online. Um, I want to just acknowledge Cindy and Mary Callison and Roberta and George. Janice Drake, I said, is with us. There might be some others. We want to know who's with us, so let us know. TJ and I have been trying to lead an online worship well, not just worship, an online ministry. Uh, I think it's over two years ago the church hired him, and by some measures we have an amazing online ministry. Uh, this church in the local community um, engages the community better than any other church I'm aware of locally by several, several fold. But then also the, the particular ministry I've started, Plain Spoken, has, uh, I would guess, around 4,000 4, people regularly connected to me on a weekly basis, uh, consulting me. Not necessarily, sometimes it's for Jesus-related stuff. A lot of times it's just for how do we reckon with developments in the world uh, faithfully. So there are some ways in which I'm very proud of this ministry. There are other ways in which I start worrying that perhaps we are helping people lower the standard of uh, faith. Assembling in Christ's name is absolutely essential, and I, I always want to make people feel, if at all possible, if they can be here, they should be here. And I worry that by recording our live stream and having it long-term, people can just hop in and check in whatever they want online, and there isn't this effort to be of one mind and spirit with us. That's, that's what congregational worship is, is an attempt for us to be of one mind and spirit in Christ Jesus. And so it doesn't seem to conform to that if people are signing in on Tuesday or Wednesday and uh, going, oh, well, you know, it's just, you know, some content I need to uh, take in. No, there's plenty of other content we put out for midweek. Uh, we have, you know, a podcast that we do. We, we generate lots of different videos and, and helps and articles. Worship is to all do together at the same time because we want to be together in the kingdom at the same time, right? And this is a, an exercise of what we anticipate in the future. So, TJ and I have been talking. I don't think we've gotten to a final, well, there's never a final point. You know, there, we're always negotiating. But I think from, from today on, we're going to start deleting the live stream after we're done worshiping. And then in the podcast later in the week, we'll publish my sermons. But um, I, I think it'll be important that we maintain a distinction and difference between what happens online and what happens in person. So, if there is somebody who we're aware of that absolutely just cannot get here, but this is, we are their people, we are their church, then we need to find ways, including, you know, maybe we'll have something password protected where they're, they're able to access it when they can, but if at all possible, I'm wanting to, the whole point of having this ministry is to move people closer to Christ Jesus, right? So, if we're just keeping people comfortable where they are, then that's not what we're supposed to be doing. My, my understanding is that the church is a series of concentric circles. You have Christ in the very middle, right? And then you have people that are close to Christ and then people that are further and further away. And the role of the church is to have regular mechanisms in place, grabbing people from the outside and bringing them closer in. And so if the church is not doing that, if it's letting people just sit at a, a distance from the, from the heart of Christ, then we are enabling uh, a lack of ideal things. So anyway... That was a long announcement. We're going to read Jonah today. Jonah is on page, is this the right? Yeah. 1441 in your pew Bibles. Page 
We just got done with 1 Corinthians. That's a letter of Paul in the New Testament. This is Jonah. Jonah is in the Old Testament. Very different genre of literature. Uh, Sarah Beth has the energy for things that I don't. She looked through all the different commentaries, found the commentary on 1 Corinthians that I enjoyed quite a lot, learned a lot from. She found this commentary. It's from a different series. I'm not holding it up right now. I left it at home. But um, I, I'm, I'm reading more in preparation for this than I have in other preaching that I've done in recent years, and that's because I care more about the plain meaning than some high-minded meaning. But there are certain things that because of my cultural assumptions that I miss because I'm not an ancient Jew. And so it's, it's important for me to, to take that time and that effort, and for you as well. There are things that are going to be lost on us if we just make our way through. The commentary that I have is concerned with figuring out this genre of Jonah. Is this history? Is it allegory? Is it figurative? Is it literal? How have, has it been read historically? How should we read it today? And uh, my eyes glaze over after reading this for about five pages because in my mind, it doesn't matter. It's true. You know, so that the, the, the conversation around is this literal history or not always seems to be undergirded, as I understand it, in a desire to dismiss it. So to a lot of people, it's just patently ridiculous that this guy Jonah actually got swallowed by a whale or a big fish or something and was alive three days later to walk in. He says one sentence, an entire city repents, including their animals, and God's wrath is turned aside. It just sounds like a big fairy tale to a lot of people. So they go, okay, what's the meaning behind this? But quite honestly, I think if we take a step back from treating it as history, then we don't take it as seriously as we ought. And Jesus referred to this like it was a historical event. He talked about how people would get no sign except the sign of Jonah, references that twice in Matthew, once in Luke. He talks about, uh, well, we'll talk about the big fish next week, I think, but he refers to the story of Jonah more than once, not as something having just figurative meaning, but literal meaning. So the conversation about how did this literally happen historically, if we got in a time machine and got back, what would we see? I'm just not interested in that, and I'm going to say that you shouldn't be either. I, I think the starting place is, this is true. How is it true today? One of the things the commentary said that I thought was really helpful was, everything in the Old Testament is building an edifice on which the New Testament completes the structure. So what we run into in Jonah is part of laying the groundwork for Christ Jesus. So the, the key figure being, how many days was Jonah in the whale? Days and nights, three. Jesus was in the belly of the beast. Death, for, he rose on the third day. And so he said that was the sign of Jonah that they would be given that is replicated. Also, I've thought that that saying has two different meanings because Jonah, as I said, only had one kernel of warning for people. And Jesus, as he warned people, he taught a very similar message. The kingdom has come near and the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe in the good news. That's the kernel of what Jesus preached. He didn't uh, go about, he did perform signs and wonders, but not on the terms that they wanted. He didn't explain the mechanics of the, the coming kingdom and how all that was going to happen. Rather, he said the people would be given less than they wanted or deserved. No, less than they wanted, more than they deserved. And that was going to have to be enough to require faith of us. So we're going to read this understanding, yes, it was true in a 
ancient Jewish historical context. It was true in a Christian context. It's true in our context today. I'm going to read the first three verses, then we're going to get a little nerdy, but I think you're going to find it interesting. Listen to the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So this is already moving very fast. The Lord speaks to Jonah, son of Amittai. Happenstantially, we're, we're told his father's name, and by that, we are pretty sure who he is and when he lived. There are a lot of people who have a hard time dating this guy, or some people think he was even made up. No, he was a real prophet. He was a real guy, and he played a role in history according to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, I think. But it doesn't talk about that here. It talks about this other episode where he's called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian or Neo-Assyrian Empire that eventually overran the northern kingdom where he was a prophet. So um, let's look at this map that I've got here. You see the blue circle right in the middle? That's Israel. That's on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's on the other side of the world. This is where the northern and southern kingdoms of the Hebrew people were. The northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judea. Judah, excuse me. And then that red circle in the top right, that's where Nineveh is. That's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were gnarly. They were, if you know uh, the history of like American, Native American tribes, they would closely correspond with the Comanche. Comanche uh, were grotesque in how they would dominate other people groups. They would scare the tar out of them by disfiguring killed bodies, by uh, doing terrible things. Well, and if you want to think about the Palestinian um, Hamas, and then it turned out it wasn't just Hamas, a bunch of Palestinian uh, people from Gaza just went in and were part of the massacre in Israel this week, did heinous things to people. That's the kind of stuff Assyria did. And they, the Hebrews had already had skirmishes with the Assyrians. They hated the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a big imperial worldly power that they hated, and wanted God to curse. They were calling down curses on these guys. Jonah is called to go from the blue circle to the red circle. It looks like that's almost a thousand miles away, 800, 900 miles away. He doesn't do it. Rather, you see that arrow to the top left, that's pointing towards Tarshish. The, most people I read are cons uh, pretty sure Tarshish is modern day Spain. So he's supposed to go northeast. He's going northwest. He's going as far away as he can, not just from his mission, but it says he's fleeing the Lord, right? It says he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, ancient Hebrew poetry is, is quite clear in the Psalms. There is no way you can go to escape from God. However, Jonah is willing to try. Let's look at the timeline that I put together here. Um, so, of course, our, our numbers, as we go further back, get smaller and smaller until you hit zero, and then they get bigger and bigger again the further you go back. So, the year 930 B.C. is almost 3,000 years ago, and that's when um, there had been a united kingdom of Israel under King David, and then his son Solomon, and after Solomon died, it split off into two. The northern kingdom 
was called Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. Uh, I wrote Judea, and that's wrong. It was Judea during the Roman time. It was Judah during this time. Anyway, they existed uh, for 20 years before the Neo-Assyrian Empire started, northeast of there. Nineveh was their capital city, and it grew from there. Um, 130 years later, you have Jonah of, of Amittai, a northern prophet referenced in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. So how many Jonah's son of Amittai that are prophets are around during this time? Probably not many. He's of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was wrong. They didn't worship at the Jerusalem temple. Every single one, they were always displeasing God. They had the golden bulls that they worshiped instead. Remember, uh, they were no good. But Jonah was a northern prophet. And apparently he was a part of God's work there at that time. He was also a part of God's work that we're reading today. Sixty years later almost, Samaria, the capital of North, the northern kingdom, Israel, was overrun by the Assyrians. So this takes place before they're overrun, but there were already enemies. There was already tension. And um, so the northern kingdom was wiped out after that. The ten northern tribes were scattered to the winds. Uh, hundred and yeah, hundred and ten years later, Nineveh then gets defeated. So God doesn't stay. You know, if you spoiler alert, at the end of this, God forgives them and withholds His hand of wrath from them. He doesn't stay happy with them. He allows the Babylonians to invade and overrun them. The Babylonians also invade and overrun the southern kingdom of Judah, and then uh, it isn't until the Persians come and kill the Babylonians that the Jews get to come back and reclaim Judea. And then, uh, yeah, that's about it. 612, 609, that's the end of them. So that's the historical context here. And then I had one more slide. I just thought this was a helpful quote for understanding Israelite history. Israel is the only nation on earth that inhabits the same land, bears the same name, speaks the same language, and worships the same God that it did 3,000 years ago. For that reason, it's not that Israel does everything right. God was displeased with things that Israelite kings did, that the Israelite kingdoms did, but even so, they are God's people. And you should just know as I'm preaching to you, I do not think that God has abandoned his blessings on Israel or the Hebrews. I don't think that they're just some other nation. Um, now, I don't necessarily believe that the, the modern nation state of Israel perfectly corresponds with the Hebrew people, but it comes pretty darn close. And so it isn't that I'm antipathetic to people who call themselves Palestinians, but it is that I am in favor of God's people. I don't think that they do everything perfectly correct. I think that they, several of members of the IDF, I think several government leaders do things wrong and are, they're gonna have to answer to God for it. Even so, God loves his people, the Israelites. God loves his people, the Hebrews. We have not replaced them. I believe at the end of history, Jews will come back into the fold. I don't, I, I, it says that we are like the redheaded stepchild of God's family. We have been grafted in. They are the natural members. They will come to confess Christ in the last days, I fully believe. I actually think that's happening now, if, if you look what's happening over there. That's only tangentially connected to Jonah. But as we're reading this, I don't want us to read this as unsympathetic to the Hebrews. What is happening here in this story is that God has already told them that they are to be a light to the nations. They are to be a priestly kingdom. They are to be making the whole world right with God through their righteous example. And then God is going to be showing us what it looks like to be reconcilers through Jonah. Because, spoiler alert, God cares about all people groups, 
not just the Jews. God wants to save the whole world, and the way that he does that is through an intermediary. And because the Israelites failed, he sent another intermediary. Who is our mediator? Christ Jesus. He is the only mediator we need, and, but we still believe that the nation of Israel is elected by God for unique purposes that have yet to be fully revealed. So Jonah's a part of this. If anybody has anything to say to me about that or ask me about that afterwards, you can, but we need to go through the first chapter now. We're in verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. So remember, Jonah's in a ship. It isn't his own personal ship. He has paid the fare to get on a big ship. Uh, it seems to be a commercial ship with people from uh, other nations around. And so he, all of a sudden, a big wind comes up on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain came to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Part of what it's showing here is that Jonah, God's, one of God's elect, is faithless. He runs from God. In his hour of need, he doesn't even turn to God. He is bitter. He is rebellious. And meanwhile, he's surrounded by all these non-Hebrews on here. And they are religious. They are praying to their gods and asking for help. But their God ain't the God that's in charge here. And they can't stand against the God of the Hebrews, because the God of the Hebrews is the creator, right? He's in charge of all this. He is God of gods and Lord of lords. There is no comparison to him. So they have their own gods that they, they follow and they worship. And then the captain comes and he says, hey, wake up. You need to pray. You would think that the gods elect people would be moving others to pray. No. <laughs> it's, it's, and so John Wesley, I remember a sermon of his. He's talking about how... Uh, how Christians should, at bare minimum, pray at mealtime, because even heathens are moved to do that. Even heathens have grateful hearts as they sit down to meal, and in his day, he was just appalled at Christians who would sit down to eat and not even give thanks to God. There are certain things that the unconverted heart is inclined towards because uh, we're naturally worshipful creatures, and yet the scandal is that many of us who are supposedly in Christ Jesus don't pray. Don't worship. Don't turn to God. Try and do things on our own strength, which is, of course, a fool's errand. But here's Jonah being the fool for our narrative pleasure. Verse 7. Oh, by the way, isn't it weird that he's sleeping in the midst? I mean, when you think about how bad a storm has got to be for them to think that they're going to crash and die, can you imagine trying to sleep during something like that? I just find that really weird. But also, do you remember a time in the New Testament where there was a big storm and the central character is asleep downstairs? Jesus. I just find it, I, I very much doubt that that's a coincidence. I think that this is a prefiguring of that. Jesus, of course, was faithful and he got up and he stilled the storm. Metaphorically, Jonah does too in a very different way. Verse 7, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Casting lots isn't really a thing people do nowadays. The, the closest thing that we do 
is like tarot cards. If you know what tarot cards are, uh, don't do them because that is divination and that's sin and it will condemn you. Uh, but the difference here being that uh, you can, well, this is something that's in the Bible. This is something that's in the New Testament. After Judas died, the 12 were incomplete. They needed a 12th. In the beginning of Acts of the Apostles, do you remember? There were three guys that were all legitimate choices. They didn't know how to choose, so they cast lots. And the lots pointed to Matthias, and Matthias filled in his part, and, and it was a good thing. So casting lots when you're doing it, I mean, when you look at, um, in the Old Testament, the, the, the high priest that was able to go in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then the temple, he wore in his breastplate, there were these lots called the Urim and the Thummim that were essentially for this purpose. They would cast lots to divine the will of God. So this is actually more common in the Bible than a lot of people know. John Wesley, the, the primary leader of the Methodist movement, whenever he was a, uh, a missionary in the, the colony of Georgia at that time, kind of got a thing for this young lady named Sophie Hopke. Wasn't sure if they should get married or not. They were thinking about it. He finally just said, you know, Lord, tell me. I'm going to cast lots. The lots said, don't marry her. But he kind of got bitter and resentful when he saw that she was engaged to somebody else. He, as the colony chaplain, they came to him for communion in front of, and in front of the whole congregation, he turned them away. He said, no communion for you. Went bad from there. He had to go home to Great Britain with his tail tucked between his legs. So just, I would counsel against casting lots, if at all possible. Just use Christian discernment. Talk to your brothers and sisters. Otherwise, it's just kind of a weird, I don't know. If you do it, just make sure you're doing it to the Lord. I don't know. Maybe I feel, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Um, even though it's in the Bible, I just think it's risky, and it, it crosses that line to divination real easy. So, But that's between you and God. Here they do it, and the Lord shows through the casting of lots that, yep, it was Jonah. So they cast lots. They all fell on Jonah. Verse 8, so they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. They already know the answer to that question. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Now, if you were in a life or death situation and you found out one person had caused all that, what would your immediate response be? Would you try and figure out what's going on and ask some questions or would you kill that fool to keep everybody alive? Most people, you know, off the boat you go. You're out of here. We got to get some space from you. These non-elect heathen Gentiles have the decency to try and figure out what's going on. Watch how decent they are. Verse 9, he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven. Anytime you see the capital L-O-R-D, that's actually God's personal name, which was pronounced something like Yahweh, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, remember, guys, his name has power, and it's not something that we should be bandying about. It's entirely appropriate to use it in private prayer, but you notice I hardly ever say it in worship. We're warned that to, to, to take or carry or bear the name of the Lord in vain is a grievous sin. So um, that's why they don't print his name in Bibles. It just makes it so it's easier not to sin. Um, but yeah, there was never a point where God said, I'm no longer named Yahweh. I'm now called the Lord. It, uh, Lord just comes from Adonai, which means master or boss. God is just, this is what you are. It's like calling you human. God is God. He's the God of gods. He is at the, the high end of, of uh, he, he's, he sits enthroned in the highest heavens, El Shaddai. 
El Elyon. Uh, let's see, where are we? Um, I answer, I worship Yahweh. Oh, the way he actually says that in Hebrew, I forgot to say this in Delaware. He doesn't say, I worship Yahweh. He says, I fear Yahweh. The way of saying who you worship is not, oh, I, I, I sing a hallelujah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's I'm afraid of this guy. This is the God that I serve. You know, I, uh, he's, he's my guy. So he's, he's claiming him even though he's running from him. I'm not making fun of that song. It's just, it's what I thought of. Um, I, I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he's saying he's the God of gods. He made everything. He's the creator. And because he's the creator, he's also the sustainer. He's the one doing this to us now. He's the one who has power over us right now. Verse 10, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? I mean, it's kind of impressive, really, that one individual guy got the creator so mad that he's doing this. What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So this is not a chronological order of telling. They've apparently, you know, it's, it's going back and forth. Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? God bless Jonah for this. You know, most of us would be inclined to lie and just say, well, I don't know. Uh, let's pray. Let's wait it out. But he knows the answer. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So in one sense, he's kind of decent in telling him what to do. But in another sense, he could just throw himself off. And he doesn't, which I find strange. Verse 13, instead, the men did their best to row back to land. Look how decent they are. They don't want to kill him, even though they know that's the solution. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll break our backs trying to row to, to land. But they couldn't, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you please. Now, is Jonah an innocent man? No, he's literally running from the Lord right there. He has disrespected God. He has tried to thwart God, as stupid as that is. But they're, they're being so kind. Lord, we don't want to kill this guy. Please don't hold his blood against us. He's an innocent guy. You know, take care of him. Don't be mad, God. Then they took Jonah, verse 15, and threw him overboard. And then the raging sea grew calm. I imagine this happening instantly. You know, like when Jesus said, peace be still. I imagine, you know, God is now happy. It's over. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Look at these guys. I love these guys. Good common sense. So even if Jonah's being an idiot, the power of God and the faithfulness of God moves people who don't even know him to praise him and worship him. Isn't that wonderful? The last verse, now. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days. So we'll talk about that. That's where we're going to pick up next week. But the, the Hebrew there, word there, term there, big fish, is uh, dag. Dag is fish, and gadol is great. But in the ancient Hebrew, what, one of the things that we don't necessarily know, you know, we live in a culture where people swim on purpose, right? We have these things called swimming pools, and people have swimsuits, and they love swimming. Ancient Hebrews would think that we are crazy. They did not like swimming. They would bathe, you know, they had mikvah pools that they would bathe in. 
But swimming, going to the ocean, going to the sea, just swimming, they thought was, oh, I thought it was raining. It's just the air. Um, they thought that was nuts because the sea is the place where you die, right? So when you think about um, the, the Egyptians, what killed them when they were coming after the Hebrews? Well, the, the Hebrews passed through dry land on the sea. Water means death. And so the Egyptians, when they chased after them, death came for them. God killed them all. And so we're going to have a poem next week that talks about how the sea is a place of death, and it's, it takes you down to Sheol. Um, this is one of the things that's lost on us about baptism. Baptism is being surrounded by water that is our spiritual death. And then because we die in Christ, according to Romans 6, we are born again in Christ. We, we, we are born with life eternal and the seal of the Holy Spirit. Um, so water is a big deal, and him being thrown into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea is a death sentence. You know, here nowadays we have stories of people whose plane goes down or the ship sinks, and they stay alive for a few hours until someone comes along and finds them. Hebrews would have found that to be crazy. Nope, he got thrown in. He's a dead man. So what just happened is God sent him a rescuer that is a big fish. Now, if you've read much of the Old Testament, the only big creature that the Hebrews talked about, whether it be in Genesis 1 when God created everything or the end of um, Job whenever God is bragging about destroying the forces of chaos and death, it's Leviathan. Leviathan is a sea monster. And so when it's talking about a big fish, there are a lot of people who are pretty sure that this is Leviathan. This is a sea monster. This is not a whale or a squid or a big tuna. Happenstantially, when Jesus is talking about it in the New Testament, the word he uses for it is the sea monster. That's in Greek, of course. Well, he, he spoke in Aramaic and it was translated to Greek. But it would seem that Jesus himself thought that it's a sea monster. So Jonah, who's supposed to be God's elect prophet, flees from God. And then God uses a terrible storm, heathens, and a sea monster to save him. It's a weird story. What does it have to do with us today? Here's, here's what I would say the good news coming out of this for us today. We imagine that we know what is good and evil on our own, right? We have that inner conscience that tells us, you know, always let your conscience be your guide. That's Jiminy Cricket, if you kids don't know. And that's, that's actually the voice of the evil one. The evil one tells us to trust in ourselves, to lean on our own understanding, right? And there are certain things that look really bad to us, and we're just sure they are. And there are certain things that look really good to us, and we're sure that they are. Remember, Eve looked upon the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, and it said, and it was very appealing to her eyes. We're the same today. And there are certain things that we go through in life that look really bad. And it's hard to believe that God is taking care of us. And it's hard to believe that God can make things right and save us from them. In 2 Peter, Peter talks about how Noah and his family were saved through the flood. The flood killed everybody, guys. And yet, this is how we are to understand our lives. There are certain things that look awful that are actually for our good. Remember when Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. And at the end of the book of Genesis, he's being reconciled with his brothers. And he says, what you meant for evil, God repurposed for good. And so this is a theme throughout the whole Bible is we live in an evil world that means to do us evil, but our God is more powerful 
than the evil around us, and in fact uses that evil for our good. That's the hard thing for us to understand. We who go through this time of suffering and tumult, we who have, are surrounded on all sides by people who are faithless, who mock us, who try and get us to sell out on our faith, we who have these bodies that suffer and fall apart and die, we who have these weak spirits that so easily give in to temptation, sometimes we look around and we say, I'm surrounded by the valley of the shadow of death. God cannot help me. And that is the voice of the evil one. And what do we say when someone speaks the voice of the evil one to us? Get behind me, Satan. Because what this world means for evil, my God is working for good in my life. And you know what? Even if my body fails and I die at the hands of hateful people who desecrate my body, my God beat death. And he will resurrect me from the dead, and I will be with him on the last day. And there is nothing you can do to me that can take that away from me. If Jonah, who is a rebel and a cursed person, can still be saved by God, then so can we. The only caution I would use to this is there are a lot of people who look at this and they go, well, look at how much Jonah was able to spurn God and God brought him anyway. I can spurn God and he'll bring me anyway. I don't think that that is the moral of the story. I think that is the opposite of what we should get. We should see this as an exceptional event where God worked astounding miracles. The reality is you and I are all here because God has already worked miracles in our lives. He might not have been swallowed by a sea monster that kept you alive in his belly for three weeks, three days. But God has already shown you who he is. He's already worked miracles. And your job now is not to be like the nations. And it's not to be an ungrateful person like Jonah. Your job is to follow, rejoice, submit, in effect, to be Christians. So, Jonah lays the groundwork for what we're going to cover. we got three more chapters of this over the coming weeks, and then it's Advent. But I hope as you meditate on this, uh, you know, a lot of people, they read through it, and it's just like a fairy tale for them. They might as well be reading Pinocchio or something. This is far more than that, and I hope that as we make our way through, that it, you see how deep and wonderful it is and how many blessings there are for you in it. Okay. Right at noon. Let's, let's stand and sing and then we'll eat. Our closing hymn is Trust and Obey, number 467.